Welcome to The Morning Crew, a grief podcast hosted by three gals in their mid-20s. Here, talking about grief is completely normal and a part of our everyday life. So grab a cup of coffee or a drink. Grief conversations can actually be that casual. So let's talk about it. everybody. We are so excited to have the whole crew back for another episode. Um, First, wanted to check in with Kelsey because it's been a while since we last connected, but I know since then you've had your high school reunion and we talked about that in our past two episodes. So I just wanted to check in and see if there was anything notable that came out of the reunion that you wanted to share with the podcast. Yes. Um, So it happened. And I would say overall, it was really actually very nice to see people. It was like a good group who showed up. Um, There was nothing dramatic that went down. So at least start with that. No like fun tea to share. But there were things related to what we talked about. Um, There was only one person that addressed it with me, which is totally fine. Like I had no true expectations of that. And I thought she did it in a cool way. And it was very surprising. So I, as we talked about, she pulled me off to the side. Like it wasn't like in front of a big group or anything. And I was seeing her for the first time in years, like definitely since um, my mom passed. And she just gave me a big hug. She's like, it's so good to see you. I'm so sorry about your mom. It, it just didn't feel sincere for me to just send a text message. I wanted to tell you that in person. And also your podcast is amazing. I've sent it to so many people. Like it's so sad. I've known so many people who've needed it, but I've sent it to so many people. And I was just like, like going from like not hearing from her in forever to just immediately being like, like, I'm so sorry. And your podcast is great. And I've shared it with people. So it's just a reminder of like, how cool that people like do listen and like we don't really know who all is listening. And I I definitely really appreciated her doing it. And I think she did it in a really like, obviously, like it would have been totally fine if anyone said anything, but I really appreciated the way she did it. And we just like talked about it briefly. We didn't dwell on it. And then we like moved on to other things. So if she's listening, shout out to her or if anyone who's connected from her is listening, shout out to them. Um, I'm so glad you had that experience at the reunion. And I'm going to ask because, you know, I'm the anxiety queen. Does someone saying that to you that you haven't connected with in so long, does it bring back any kind of like, I wonder what I or thinking about what you've said? Because we've been doing this for a while now. And so sometimes I feel when I share it with someone, I'm like, did I say something if you like the very beginning, I wouldn't want everybody to hear or kind of that realization that people you don't even connect with are listening. How did that how that make you feel? Um. Yes, I definitely had a moment where I was like, oh, shoot, like, yeah, like, oh, what have what have I said over the past like two years? And like, wow, maybe she now knows a lot more things about me or like, have I said anything weird about my hometown or anything? So I definitely had that flash, but she was just so sincere with how she was saying it and so matter of fact and it just like was very sweet. Um, so the anxiety was quick. And then the only other thing that I can say is that in some conversations with other people, um, I had a couple people be like, 
oh, how are your, I mean, how's your dad doing? Like I had a couple people like catch themselves, almost say parents or like, oh, are your, I mean, your dad is still living here. Like that happened once or twice um, where I like, I caught it because right, I'm listening for it. And I obviously didn't like stick on it or like say anything. And I just like, oh yeah, my dad, you know, blah, 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 blah. But like that happened a couple of times where it was like, obviously it's so natural to say parents and they knew they didn't address it with me directly. I'm thinking of one conversation specifically where that person like did text me when she passed. And then like, you know, we haven't had a reason to talk about it again. You can always see almost like the little panic in their eyes when they do it. And so I try to be very like, no, it's okay. And like, I try to make sure they don't feel uncomfortable. I feel like that's something we've kind of talked about, like on our side of us having to change language when we say, oh, my parents or my grandparents, and when we're describing our lives. So it's interesting to see it like being told back to you and that and that language being edited. I think I've talked about that in the past of like, it's almost become so particular how you say certain things that you create your own kind of like grief language. And so it's crazy to see that come back to you. And I'm sure it was kind of a lot of, it, I mean, it was the environment where you would hear that over and over again versus just like maybe one person saying that to you. Um, I was also curious if that was the first time somebody had said like, like brought up the podcast with their condolences because I'm, I didn't know if that maybe almost like made it a little easier to digest. And I hate to say that. I obviously don't mean that it's easy at by any means, but like, I'm curious to hear that. Like, how did you, how did you feel about hearing your podcast grouped with Lost Now versus like before that people would have just said, I'm so sorry about your mom? That is such a good question. Um, I think it did help because it was immediately something to like latch onto that was like a thing that now is existing and is productive and is seemingly helping people that she knows. And if we were just sitting in the like, oh, yeah, it's really sad and like, oh, yeah, that happened you know, it would have been fine, but it was weirdly nice because there are also instances where people give condolences, but they don't know about the podcast. And then having to then share the podcast is kind of a lot. So this was a niche one where she was giving condolences and knew about the podcast. So it was kind of nice to be able to just like be like flattered. She mentioned it and complimented it and just talk about it right away. Yeah. I feel like it's such a an interesting it's kind of good it's kind of like a bittersweet moment because you have this thing that she's wanting to talk to you about and it kind of gives you a good opportunity to bring it up but not be like oh let's talk about your mom you know it's almost like hey let's talk about this really cool thing you're doing and it makes it easier I feel for not only her but you and just the whole like situation in general um, so the language around that grief um, that grief conversation and being able to talk about that is is very cool um, and I'm really glad you had that experience. And and as we talk about the language of grief and how you talk about grief more and more, um, I thought the really cool idea for today's topic would be to talk about the five stages of grief. Um, I'm not sure if you guys or anyone listening, but I kind of remember I was thinking about it and I kind of remember me hearing about that as like kind of like in a joking sitcom way the first time I started hearing about what it was. And I also, I guess, was probably way too young to feel any kind of grief. Um, but I did some research on it because I was curious and obviously as we'll dive into it, how it is it is, is something that's, uh, genuinely goes with the process. Uh, but the five stages of grief was developed by Elizabeth, uh, Kubler-Ross. 
Um, and she, it became famous. She wrote a book and it was released in 1969. And the book was called On Death and Dying. Um, and in that book, she used the model to describe people with terminal illness facing their own depth, but then it was soon adapted as a way of thinking about grief in general. Um, so it's kind of, I find that, you know, in as things have changed and as uh, being talking about grief and, and experiencing it has been a little bit more common, I, I feel like it comes up a lot. And so um, I'm assuming that uh, for the most part, most people are familiar with them, but um, much like I feel grief in general, it's not linear. It doesn't, it's not that they go in order always. It's not that you maybe even feel them all, um, but there are five of them that are the overall emotions that come when you're dealing with grief and their denial, anger, bargaining, depression, um, and acceptance. And I think we're going to dive into all of those a little bit more. Um, I'm going to toss it to Kathy in the true form of being our first official griever in the, in our in our trio um, to kind of go through what the denial, kind of dig into the denial one and, and kind of share her experience. Yes. I also would probably say that denial seems like the most evident one or apparent stage that I think I went through. Um, It's like the most obvious, I should say, to me. And so denial is kind of described as the world, your world becoming meaningless and overwhelming after you experience loss. Like you're just in such a state of shock and denial. And so we basically kind of go numb in order to survive. And I know Mads and I have talked about this at length um, a little bit, but for me personally, this was the exact stage that I experienced right after my loss. So I remember kind of almost like forcing myself to cry a little bit sometimes because there was just nothing inside of me. Like I was truly just so empty. There were no emotions there. And so much so that I think like my mom definitely noticed and my family noticed it a lot. And there was one point, I think, during the funeral where I like teared up a little bit. And I don't know if you guys had this, but our my dad's funeral was recorded like literally on a camcorder because that's how like back in the day what we were doing. Um, and so they were videoing record. They were recording it on video, and a family member saw that I got emotional at one certain point of the funeral. And my mom was like, "Where? Like, let me see," because she was in such shock that I was expressing any sort of emotion because I was that numb, like as a rock. The whole kind of months and probably I would say years, um, really after. So I definitely experienced this. It was a coping mechanism. It was the only way I figured out how to survive, which is kind of just scary also thinking back to how young I was, like that I that my body knew what to do and how it just immediately went into that. It's kind of crazy and just is evidence that even these stages like can be true for a 12-year-old. So I think that that is one stage that I – I definitely relate to strongly um, and just that overwhelmingly numbness. I don't know if you guys have felt that and it doesn't have to be directly after loss, but at some point during your grief journey. Um, One question for you first before answering. Um, Would you also say with the denial that like 
you had a hard time, not just emotionally, but like verbally, like having to say like, yeah, my dad passed away or like, were there any times where like speaking it for the first time or like doing things like where you're just in denial? And I imagine that these feelings are almost more primal when you're so young, like you don't have like the adult filters to like mask them at certain times. So like the numbness makes sense that you like your body like automatically was just blocking it out. But do you have moments of remembering like, I feel like denial can come up through a lot of the firsts of things maybe? That's interesting. Um, I think that it was all over. So when I was actually saying those sentences like, oh, my dad died or like my dad passed, I felt no emotion attached to that sentence when I was saying it, especially at school. I remember like distinctly being at my locker and I think I've explained how it was announced on the school system because I went to a Catholic school. And so like this prayer was dedicated for him on one of the days and all of these kids were just like staring at me. Some came up to me um, and asked me about it. And I just like, like none of that evoked any sort of emotions when they were talking to me about it. And they, I could tell were like shocked. Interesting. Um, That all though makes sense. Like you said, like your body automatic. And I think of all the five stages, just taking a step back for the overall stages. I think it might be preconceived that they rigidly follow this order and a specific timeline. But I think we can all be proof that while we feel all five or have felt all five, the time that you experience each of them and the order doesn't necessarily like align with everybody else because it's so individual. Um, For me, denial definitely comes through. Obviously, you have denial in the like moments it's about to happen and happening where your body, like your mind cannot process. And I remember feeling that way. Like my sister and I, when she was like on hospice, like, you know, we're talking about like, this isn't real. Like this doesn't feel like real life and it's right in front of us, but this doesn't feel possible. And like saying those things and having to like talk it through, even though it was right in front of our, right in front of our face. Um, And then I think being able to reenter my worlds, like my San Francisco world, as I've talked about, um, allowed me to live in denial a little bit and just like go back to my like busy life at the Giants. That was the year they kind of made a postseason run. It was really busy. Um, I was, you know, kind of dating someone. Like I almost was like, well, like, you know, as I've said, like it's not like I'd be seeing her every day anyway. So I almost let my brain, like that was part of how I like was able to re-enter was like, well, like almost tricking myself. Like, no, she's still there. She's just back home. Like not literally those words, but that's kind of what my brain would do. Um, And sometimes I do think it's a coping mechanism. I still do. And of course, when I'm home or I'm at events or moments where I know she would be there, I can't be in denial. But when I'm somewhere else, I think my brain sometimes automatically does that because it's easier for me to process that it's like, oh, maybe not. Maybe it's not real. Um, So it's interesting that for me, it's not just been right after it's been like in the later time. I know I'm still fresh in terms of the big picture being only a couple years out, but I still feel it. I was going to touch on that too. When we were talking about, you know, how you don't, might not feel all of these things or you might not feel them all in order or I, and you know, we always say again that grief is something that is something you'll always feel and always have to deal with. And so it's 
it's interesting. And and I was thinking the same thing. Kels is like, they come, it still comes up even when it's not recent, um, which is really interesting. And another thing that you touched on um, whenever you were saying, you know, like leading up to the time in hospice and, you know, you kind of knew, but still, even so, um, when my grandfather, my second grandfather passed away, I like the hospice nurses had basically said, and I might have said this before, I'm sorry, um, but maybe new listeners haven't heard it, um, but the hospice nurses had said that he had had a couple hours maybe. And so my mom called me at work because we were very, 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 I was very, always very, very close with my grandfather. And my sister ended up booking me a flight and like I basically left work and like within an hour I was on a flight back home. And so it's in that whole time too, I was like kind of like, I almost felt and it was not my first experience with grief, but I almost felt like I was like feeling like I was like in a movie of sorts. I'm like, this doesn't happen. Like you're not just like going to go like get drinks with your friends and stuff after work. And then now you're on a flight home because someone that you love is going to die in a couple hours. And I also was really freaked out because I didn't know if he was going to go while I was on the plane. And I had no idea of knowing, you know, they had, I, I had a driver pick me up at the airport and I had no idea of knowing from that time to the hour I got there if what was happening. Um, so I feel like that is it is kind of like that stage of de- of denial and being like, okay, like it was almost like I was just going and I didn't really know what was happening because I didn't want to th- feel it or think about it. Um, I don't know if it's because I was traveling alone or what, but it was it was almost like I always knew that even whenever he wasn't healthy, nothing was going to happen. I was like, oh, it's fine. Like he's like, and even like, you know, grandpa's die. Like I'm like, no, like it's fine. Like nothing's going to happen. And then even leading up to that point, it was like the opposite of like actually starting to grasp it until I like pulled into the driveway and went in there and kind of dealt with the situation. Um, so it's kind of interesting how, how you can go in and out of it like that. Um, I also did it originally – put the word numbness with denial, even though it makes a lot of sense. Um, As Kathy said, we a lot of times do talk about, you know, the numbness that goes behind it, but I didn't really put those in the same category in my brain until I read the notes that we were taking for this episode, actually. Um, So that's another interesting thing and feeling of like all the different feelings we talk about that maybe somehow fit into these shelves of the stages of grief that we're discussing now. And one other thing with denial that I'm sure comes to play very strongly is you have kind of the two tracks. You either have somebody who's sick and getting sicker and you kind of know it's happening and then you really know it's happening and then it happens and you can have denial in that process. I certainly did. Like if I look back on you know, journal entries when it was like close to her passing. It's like, oh, well, she's trying one more medication and like, you know, it's going to be okay because it has to be okay. And I think that's a really common phase to be in denial when you, you know, it's happening, but you like want to cling to any sliver of possible hope and hearing the words for the first time of like, there is no more options or like, this is it. Like hearing those words for the first time can really like sharply snap you out of it. But I imagine there's hefty doses of denial also if you don't know what's happening, if it's a brain aneurysm, if it's a car crash, if you have nothing, literally nothing preparing you, then it's a different brand of denial because you're like, well, this is impossible. Like they were healthy. They were fine. I was talking to them yesterday and now they're gone. And I can see the denial phase lasting even longer. And I know none of us have dealt with like that instant, like young, healthy person, like just horrible thing happening. But I can imagine you really being under that denial cloud because it's like one second they're there and the next they aren't. Like you have no time to even somewhat prepare. So I'm curious what you guys think of like that distinction too. 
Yeah, that's interesting that the type of loss or the way that a person dies could play a factor into which stages maybe you're experiencing for longer periods of your time. I'm sure it still varies by person, like what you're experiencing and for how long you experience it. But I think there's something to be said about that for sure. I can, I agree with you. Like I would imagine that that type of loss puts you kind of in the denial stage for a longer time. It's, uh, I found it curious when you said it too. And you said, you know, whenever you had known that your mom, like, oh, she's going to try one more med, like maybe this will work. I found that when I heard you say that, like, I remember being little and hearing of, and Kath, you don't have this privilege, unfortunately, but hearing of people whose dads passed away when we were in elementary school or, you know, something that would happen to someone who would get in a car accident. And I would always think, I don't know if it was a way to help with my anxiety. I don't think it anymore, unfortunately, but I would always just be like, oh, that doesn't happen to us. Like, it's just going to work out. Like, that does, that's not going to happen to us. And as you guys know, some of the personal random family things that have happened in my life the past few years, I don't really have that thought process anymore. But I grew up having it and being like, oh, no, someone, someone dying early, someone having a heart attack, that's not going to happen. Um, completely resonate with that. Yeah. Where it's like, you're like, oh, that's impossible. Like that happens to other people. That doesn't happen to me. And that's, I think everybody at some point can relate to that. And until it does happen to you and you, but otherwise you feel untouchable or you feel like the people around you are untouchable or specifically with parents. Like we said, the dynamic is like, well, they're just going to be there like almost always for most of your life. And like, that's it. But yeah, definitely relate to the like, oh, of course that can't happen. Are you kidding me? Like that's what happens in news stories or in movies. That doesn't happen in my life. And that's, I think, a very common denial thought pattern. Yeah. I was going to say, and is still ever present even after loss. Like I would say even more so in my, in, from my experience, like, and I'm going to get kind of dark here, but for me, I'm like, there's no way I can lose my mom like when I'm young too. That's just, that cannot happen. Like it won't happen. Obviously there are stories where unfortunately those things are true, but it's my coping mechanism of like, I just can't even go there and think about that. Like that will be too much for my brain to process. So it's interesting even like ever after having gone through it, like you can still play out denial like in other scenarios or maybe like it's even stronger because you've gone through loss. Wait, yeah. It's almost like you feel like I hit my shitty luck quota. So there's no way like something else bad can happen because I've already checked the box for my one really horrible thing. And like, there's no way, like, what are the odds something else horrible could happen to, yeah, like my other parent or somebody else close to me. I've definitely had that thought too. It's it's funny how it shows up and I I feel like I had the opposite of that even this last summer, not proudly, but again, I'm going to bring it dark with you, Kath. Uh, when my dad was dealing with cancer, I was like, everything has gone on so like I was kind of in my own dark little cloud and I was like, you guys have known and I've touched on it. I've had a tumultuous couple years with my family and so I'm like, of course this is going to happen. Of course it's not going to be good and thank God he's in remission and I knew even so that the kind of cancer he had, his leukemia did not have a mortality rate much at all. Um, and so I knew it was going to be okay, but I also was like, I don't know. He always tells me things are right and everything's going to be okay. So is he just lying to me and is it not going to be okay? Or is this going to be like a whole other thing of like, why wouldn't this happen? And so it's interesting. And I, it, I'd be curious to know, like, and of course I won't know until I just keep talking about it with you guys, but if that would have come from talking about grief in the podcast 
I don't know that I would have related it back to a grief situation without having our conversations basically, but it's kind of, yeah, that whole over like, yeah, of course this would happen. So that's kind of an interesting headspace that I unfortunately got into and I'm proud of you guys for not necessarily getting into that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's kind of crazy how you like reflect, reflect back and actually learn like through the podcast or things that we read like, oh, that was this or like you actually recognize things. And I think I'll also say just to caveat, like for me, the educational component of grief has been a coping mechanism for me. Like I, to be quite honest in therapy, always ask my therapist to like, if there are terms for things or like labeling things, which she doesn't love because she doesn't want to put like a label on everything or for me to categorize every single thing. But it's really helpful for me because instead, I don't think I would go down like a spiral just reading about it. It's more so just like relatable or I, okay, this is so normalized because there's a literal term. So, so that's how many people experience this with grief. So I think the the overall stages of grief, it helps me with that of like normalizing all of these feelings and then maybe even like seeing your past um, or reflecting on your past experiences and like maybe assigning them to a stage might be helpful. Completely. I think just, yeah, feeling like it's not unique to you. Like everyone has similar thought patterns. Everyone goes through these different rounds. And I know people will even say they go through this after like a big breakup or like other big losses in their life. And like you said, Mads, from the beginning, like I remember being introduced to it in like the jokey sitcom ways too. Um, but the last note I'll give on denial is one other avenue for denial is meeting new people who don't know and acting for a little bit like your person's alive without, like we've said, like whether it's a first date or meeting a new person and they don't know yet. So like in their minds, it doesn't exist yet. And so I'm like, oh, currently in the universe, like my mom is still here because they don't know any different. Um, So that's kind of one final avenue of denial that I feel like I can keep living in for as long as I meet new people who don't know. you know, you think about like a first date where it's like, as we've talked about, like Kath and I, especially like dancing around certain language or certain questions. So it doesn't really come up, but people will be like, oh, your family. And I'll be like, oh yeah, my family, this knowing they assume, of course, that like my two parents are alive. And I kind of secretly like, like that, that I'm like, or if they ask me questions and like, oh, like, what did your mom do? Or like, what does she do? And I answer in like a very careful tense. I'm like, look, they get to learn about my mom without just thinking of her as like someone who's passed away. And I actually enjoy that, that like the first introduction to her is her as a human versus the fact that she's passed away. So maybe that's denial, but I feel like a version of denial at least. It's more of a fun version of denial, I feel. <laughs> uh, I had a similar – I'm going to – my last touch on this as well because I wanted just to tell you. I had a, I had a similar experience this week. Um, I was talking to someone at a bar and he was wearing a Cubs shirt and I stopped watching baseball as much when my papa passed away because it was very hard because that's how I got into it. And I remember talking to him and I was like, oh, yeah. like, And I kind of used the tenses as if my papa was still alive. And I was like, I just haven't watched it a lot like since I moved. But like I didn't say he was, but I was like, yeah, like my papa got me really into it. It was kind of talking. Um, and so it's interesting because I guess – things that you don't realize would put together with the stage of denial is that. I was just going to say it's nice to have like a sunny spot uh, where you can kind of like flip the stage into even a positive way. Um, But moving into the next stage, this is anger. 
Anger, I think, is obviously self-explanatory. And I think also probably to me, again, one of the more apparent stages, um, I think people can so easily get angered with grief and they don't even realize it. Um, And I do think that it's necessary to experience anger in order to heal. It's kind of like if you've ever gone through a breakup, again, a loss, sometimes you can be like stuck in the sadness for a long time. And then I know like I have like personally taken a long time to get to the anger portion but I know that once I'm at the anger portion, I'm on my way to healing. So I feel like it's kind of similar with grief, um, but obviously in a way different manner. Um, the more you feel it, I feel like the more it will then disappear and the more you'll heal. Um, and the anger can be, I know I've experienced this with my faith, like asking God, why did this happen to me? Like, why? Like, if there is a God, like, why did this happen in general? Um, Or it could be like anger coming out with people around you or your surroundings, especially like in those first couple of months after loss, but it could be even well after loss. I know, again, like I've experienced friends who obviously were fighting with their parents all of our teenage years. And that would make me so angry at the time of like, why can't you just appreciate that you have living parents and like make an effort to try to get along and resolve any conflict? Um, and there was a lot of jealousy that I felt with that too, of like, you should be so happy you even have two living parents. Obviously, I've learned along the way how to kind of normalize that and cope with those types of feelings. But for me, though that's how like I think anger showed up. I think it was a lot more internally. Um, And then the only thing I'll say that was external that I can remember fresh, um, I think fresh during, this was actually when my dad was sick and I was in fifth grade and I have this vivid memory kind of going on a tangent here, but I was like really stressed about something in school or like somebody was picking on me for something and I just freaking snapped at him. Um, This was literally fifth grade and we were leaving and I was like, well, at least your dad doesn't have cancer. Like, because I was dealing with that at home. And I remember like crickets, obviously, because like, what is a fifth grader going to respond to that? And so I just like, I could tell, like, that's almost like evident to me. Like I could tell how angry I was even at the start of just like the disease um, and then in so many mo- moments after, but that was a very crazy story and like vivid memory I have forever. Um, that seems like it makes so much sense. And it's like when somebody's going through something so hard, obviously you give people like the most amount of grace for being angry, like of any other, I mean, people are allowed to feel all their emotions, but of course, like with grief, but I wonder going back to you being a kid, like, can you picture yourself at age 28? like at work snapping if that would have just happened to you too? Or do you think there's something to be said that like, again, with like the stages being more primal when you're a kid, cause you don't really have a filter. I don't know if you can actually answer that, but like your best hunch. Um, I think that I would have a little bit more of emotional regulation because I'm 28 versus 11, but I would hope so. Um, but 
that's it's not completely off the table. I think I could definitely snap if somebody was being really aggressive about like not having or about like a fight with their dad over something like really stupid. It could come out. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think that's super fair. I mean, it's one of those like you're allowed to feel and do anything. And sometimes people need a little bit of a reality perspective check. Um, I I think it's interesting how you framed it with a breakup because I fully agree from the breakup perspective that once you hit anger, you are so much like easier able to heal and to move on from a guy. Like they always say like, oh, if you still have feelings and everything was great and they break up with you, you like, you can't, you just feel sad or you just miss them. But if somebody cheats on you or something, it hurts, but you're pissed. And if you're pissed, you can like move on. Weirdly, like I can't correlate that to grief the same way. Maybe because I'm not automatically, I like, as we've said, like I really try to be positive. Like I don't lean into anger often. And I will catch myself if I start feeling angry about my mom. Like I will try to really regulate, suppress, change the tone quickly because I guess I'm telling myself that that's not a productive feeling. I weirdly didn't have that judgment around denial. I'm like happy to dance around denial from time to time. But I do catch myself and I'm curious if you guys at all do too, that if I start getting in those thought patterns like like Kathy, you're saying like, why would this happen to me? Or like, why her? Why my family? Why was like, they're not more scientific breakthroughs? Why did we not catch the cancer sooner? Like when I start getting into those thoughts that make me angry, I just don't feel like they're ever productive, but I feel like anger is so productive in a breakup. So can you guys, either of you resonate with that at all? <laughs> Okay, I was I was giggling when you were saying that, Kels, because I'm just thinking, hmm, what like how your mind is so much better than mine in some of those ways. Because I'm like, I don't have that thought. I don't have the like thing. It's like it could be worse. Like it could not be. Like like nope. Um, I I would love to, and I should work on that. And I know that. Um, but I do find that the the similarities in the breakup. Like I I agree with with Kathy as like the beginning. I feel it's like. I take a long time to get to the anger anger stage. And I feel like in my like grief death journey, uh, I got to that really quickly. It's probably the one I've had the most experience with, I would say. It might be tied with one other one at the end. Um, but I still – and it's, I will mimic what Kathy said. Um, I still, to this day, I'm kind of like – I wasn't raised in very religious. Um, both my parents were raised very, very religious, um, and they had bad experiences with it. So they kind of separated and decided not to raise us with a religion. That being said, I had gone to the church churches with my grand, both sets of my grandparents, um, different denominations. And I, uh, I find it interesting because even though I don't have that kind of background or knew what my belief system was, I was like, oh, yeah, there's a God, there's this, there's that. And the grief – side of things, that's when I started to challenge it most, like my like spirituality. I'm like, if this is a thing that everyone's saying, then, you know, why would this happen? And, and you know, the way that um, my papa passed away was was pretty dark. And I'm like, why would this happen if this is a real thing? Like this person went to church for their whole life and all of the things. Um, so I find that being something that I still kind of struggle with. And even so, I'm with my boyfriend now, like we were talking the other day and he was also raised very religious. And I 
brought up. I was like, well, this is because of the way when my grandpa passed away, this is what happened and kind of explained it through the grief journey why I have those issues. Um, and not to say that anything's right or wrong or that my my brain and mind won't be changed. Um, I'm always open to learning and I, and I am, but that's one thing I found that I haven't really gotten over as much with the, the stages of grief. Yeah, I completely relate to that. And I agree with you. I do not have Kelsey's mentality at all in terms of shutting down my thinking when I'm going down that path. That's absolutely not what's happening. I do let myself feel my emotions, which I wonder if that's an avenue that you would ever explore. I don't know if it would be productive to do that, but I'm curious what would happen if you did. Um, But that can be something you talk to your therapist about. I am not an expert. Um, But I do agree also in terms of the faith aspect. It is something that I I am a very uh, religious and spiritual person. And it's constantly the challenge I have most with my faith. I talk I've talked to pastors about it. I've gone through support groups about it. Like I bring it up as much as I can and challenge it whenever I can and feel safe and in an environment that I can. Um, Obviously, that could be a whole nother uh, grief conversation and episode, but I totally am with you there. I think that that is a lot of where my anger stems from. I think that's great, though, that you've like sought out like talking to as many different people and different avenues as possible about it, because I think and that could be a whole other episode is religion and loss and like whatever you believe in, like when something horrible happens to you, like trying to reconcile those two things Um, and totally agree with you that I should be feeling my emotions more so and not like judging them or (laughs) suppressing them. So let me ask you guys both a silly question. Um, Not like elementary school versions of you, but like current adult, you guys, like how does the anger manifest when you let yourself feel it? Are you venting to a friend? Are you like doing like, are you going on a run angry? Are you just like listening to really intense music, like literally explain to me how you allow yourself to feel anger. (laughs) Every way possible. (laughs) Sometimes it is like a vent to a friend um, or a coworker. Typically, I'm usually pretty close with a coworker because I I think because we spend so much time with them. Um, So typically a vent. Also, I found a lot of it which is newer in my life in the past year, but through, you know, the cycle, cycle studio. And I think that might be because my community went through something so great together that like, it's kind of like, oh, we moved through this. And so I found myself on days where I'm really angry or frustrated with anything that I'm like, I'm just going to see who's teaching. Just go ride. Um, That's probably the most ideal way to um, let it manifest itself, but I'm not always my ideal best self. So it kind of could go all over the place. Sometimes I just want to drive to the beach and yell at the ocean. And I've done that in the past couple of years. So, I mean, I think uh, there's no right or wrong way to, uh, to, to let it manifest, but sometimes I feel like I feel so much, so much all the time that I'm like, I just have to like explode it out some way. Um, but I could also take a note from Kelsey on the fact of feeling a little bit like less and just trying to like not do all of the things that I do. Um, but I did have to giggle because uh, yeah, absolutely every way possible. And like picturing, like, do you go to like ax throwing or those like places where you can like beat stuff up with a bat? Like those have looked kind of like tempting to try. I actually, um, in the past 
year when we were dealing with a loss of someone um, who was still alive and it was kind of more of an anger situation, we did go to a rage room and there's a video of me at the rage room with a baseball bat and like, a, oh my God, it was the best. I will totally post that for anyone to see because it was, it was, it's on my TikTok. It's like one of the best things ever. So I did channel it that way once and it was, it was uh, a more productive and felt very good afterward way. Um, Kathy, what about you and the ways that you uh, channel and manifest your anger? Yeah. I Well, first of all, thanks for being honest in admitting that there are both healthy and unhealthy ways to cope with your anger. I definitely agree with that. I think the venting is probably my number one way. It, just with any like anger feeling in general, and even if it wasn't about grief, like I would just equate it to that. Just again, like if I was angry about, I don't know, like somebody not treating me right or having a fight with like a friend or something. And if I had somebody to just vent to and I, and I asked them not to say anything back because it doesn't need to be a conversation. It can just be like a release of that emotion. That's what I think is like the part that is important. Um, it can be journaling. It can be Mads. I think that like exercise or working out is like a really healthy way. Sometimes I'm so mad that I like don't want to do that. Some Sometimes I'll eat actually as a way to cope with that, which isn't like the best, but it's like stress eating almost is similar to that. But yeah, I definitely like venting is my number one, but I think it's important that I release it or else it stays bottled up. But that's just my experience. Maybe when we all finally get to meet in person, we add to the agenda going to a rage room together so I can practice letting out my anger and we can all let out anger together. Just throwing that out there. I love that idea. Perfect. I'm in. (laughs) But no, it's just something about a lot of times when I feel angry, it just something feels very uncomfortable or like there's not a release when I vent. Like it just makes me feel ickier, more stressed. And there's just something in me that like venting at times or certain things like, you know, oh, a coworker drama or like something like that, like is different. And even so that sometimes I've just learned that like the more I vent about it, I like, I'm not changing anything about it. So it's not actually really helping me. Um, But with grief, yeah, I've just like told myself, like, what's the point of you being angry? Like, it's not going to change anything. Or like, why be angry? Like, this is the facts. And like, that's what I just tell myself for better or for worse. But sometimes I do feel angry and I should not suppress it when it comes up. So thanks for the tips and tricks on anger. Again, I am no professional. That is something you should discuss with the therapist, but I would just be curious to hear what they would say. Um, But okay, moving into the third stage, bargaining. So bargaining. Um, Bargaining is kind of like, so the way that I view this is especially the before the loss, if you could do something to prevent the loss in some sort of way. Like, oh, again, I'll, I'll connect it back to faith here. Like, God, I'll be like such a good person or I'll always be supportive of my dad and like be around him and love him unconditionally. If you don't 
take him away from me, like something like that. Um, it could look like before. Um, and then after definitely the if only statements or the what if statements, what could I have done differently to prevent the loss? Maybe almost like blaming yourself sometimes, which is ridiculous, obviously, but it can happen and feeling any sort of guilt will just do anything to like, we'll, we'll think I'll do anything to not feel this pain. And that's also bargaining too, is like, what can I do to not feel this pain? Um, so I think for me, this is a, this is a hard one to talk about, but the one thing that comes to mind is feeling guilt of, and this might just be guilt, um, but mostly the what if statements of like, what if I had just spent more time with him while he was sick? And instead of I was trying to ignore and avoid, to be quite honest, which feels again, really dark, but I was so young. I did, I did not want to, I was in denial that my dad was sick and I didn't want to engage with him. And it was harder too, because I've mentioned before, he couldn't speak verbally anymore after one of his surgeries. And so I was like, I don't want to, I don't want that version of my dad. Like it was really fucked up, but I couldn't handle it. And so I think I avoided spending time with him because it was just way too hard for me. And I think after loss, I felt like I should have spent more time, even though it was hard, like I should have tried somehow. And maybe it would have I wouldn't be feeling this sort of weight after loss or like, which is ridiculous because it still would have been so hard. It's, it might've been even harder in some ways because I would have connected so much at the end. But I think about how like, oh, I should have squeezed every last drop of the juice that I could have when he was alive. And like, I, and I didn't do that, but again, have done so much therapy for this. Um, and it is something that I look back and I feel bad for myself, but I, for the most part, have healed a bit from that. It has been a really big hurdle to overcome in my grief journey. Thank you for sharing that part as always. I know that's a really, really tough and hard one. Um, I think you said like, oh, I know this is ridiculous, but, and I want to reframe that like, I feel like innately with bargaining, there's never going to be like true logic associated with any form of bargaining. It's always going to just come from whatever you can cling to. So that's definitely not ridiculous at all. I think it's just natural human nature when something traumatic, horrible, horrendous happens to you in that way. You try to, it just feels so impossible that it can happen that you cling to any little thing you you possibly can to try to like make sense of it, I guess. I think for me, bargaining more so comes up with the like going back to like if only we found the cancer sooner. And like I was 13 and like pretty unaware of what was going on. So it's not like I personally could have done anything. It's more like her doctors. And thinking about like, and that blends with anger. Like you talk about the one time I ever start feeling angry is that because that feels like, you know, when they found her cancer, it was very advanced already. So not to say it was like a guarantee, but in most cases, like you find cancer in stage one, 
you know, you have a much higher survival rate. And it's just, it's not like they were looking for it or, you know, but it's just like, really like it, it's just like how, how and no checkup, no anything like, and so that's where my, if only what if statements really come in. I think once she was diagnosed, she lived a longer amount of time than she was quote unquote supposed to. So like, I maybe don't feel it around that. And I feel like I was able, you know, to be there. And in part because of COVID and having to spend more time at home, I was able to gain more quality time at home with her at this point, which I've talked about. But I think that's where my bargaining comes in is like being angry. And then you try to think like, there's no like concrete scientific evidence, like holistically on like how cancer is created. Like obviously, you know, cells being bad or whatever, but in terms of like, was it a genetic thing? Was it, she was exposed to some toxin at some, like you just like, there's no way to know that avenue of like how, and like trying to go down that path is just also hard. Um, I don't know if bargaining then maybe comes into play more if like you, you aren't happy with the final interaction or like you said something you wish you didn't say or like, oh, they took my car instead of this car and they got in a car accident. And if only I would have done this, like I'm like, if there was specific moments. So Mads, I'm curious for you, if there was um, bargaining coming up for either of your grandfathers. Um, yeah, thank you for uh, sharing, Kelson. It's interesting to hear you talk about both denial and anger and how your brain kind of like, it's almost like your brain, you're kind of explaining how you're, how you're thinking and how your brain's working. And it's, it's a very admirable approach to be like, yeah, I could dig into this and try to figure out if the cancer was genetic or if you know how it happened, but like, it's not going to change anything. And honestly, it might just make it worse. Um, so I'm happy from uh, across the country friend that you have that thought process to be able to have. Um, yeah, as far as the direct way, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Like, I found that this is the stage that we've gone through so far that might have been the one I have the least after shock with. Like, I feel like the other two are something I still can kind of feel. Um, I think the bargaining thing, it comes in in like two different ways I can think about. And the first one is that I am the only um, McGill cousin who is not within driving distance to grandma or anyone. I'm the only person in either side of my family in the cousin generation that is not with the driving distance to each other. Um, so sometimes that kind of gets in, in the way. I, I'm grateful that I was home when Papa passed because I think it would have been a lot more difficult if I wasn't because um, I did take off so much time and I did spend a lot of time with my family who I'm very, very close with. Um, but it's yeah, it's interesting how that's my biggest like bargaining thing is like wishing I could be closer. And I knew that like with um, when my gr grandpa was passing away, my second grandpa, um, my sister was able to be there for like a week because she lived up there and she was able to get there. And I had to fly in for a few hours before he died. So it's kind of like, I'm grateful that this is happening. And I think I even use this as a bargaining, like a an activity on the plane. Like I was like, oh, like this will happen and it'll be fine and whatever. So I think I kind of use that more in the process of figuring out um, about grief. Uh, the only other thing that really came to mind was that the day that my papa, papa passed away, um, there was a Cubs game and I was at it. Um, it was a night game and that was the 
night he passed away, but my cousin wasn't was there at the hospital when it had happened. And so I was kind of like, oh, like if I didn't go to the Cubs game, if I was, you know, four blocks away at the hospital, would that have been anything different? And I haven't thought that or really, I've never really vocalized it, but I haven't thought that in a very, very long time till we're just talking about it. So I think I've come to peace with that side of it again, like I mentioned. But I remember in that moment being like, oh, she was there. Like, should I have been there? What I like, I wasn't with my parents. Like, my dad was there. I wasn't there with him. I was at a game with his tickets. Like, I kind of felt guilty in that sense of it. Um, so a little bit different than the way that you have, but I find that that's kind of cool that they, these can all kind of go in different in different ways, and like it even more solidifies that we're all kind of on our own journey with it, and how there's so many different ways to feel all the different things. Yes, very well said, and I think. Yeah, so interesting that we all kind of experience bargaining differently. And I would even throw in that in just like romantic relationships, breakups, bargaining ends up being, I think, really intense. And often like not to totally gender stereotype, but I think females especially, well, if I texted him this instead of this, or if I did this, or if I wore this, I mean, depending on like how long or short of a relationship you had with somebody, I feel like bargaining is most relatable probably to our audience listening if you haven't yet experienced grief, like from that perspective, whether somebody ended things with you after two months or two years or whatever, I feel like it's so easy to just be like, oh, well, if I did this differently or I did this differently and that's just like very human nature. But we all know like deep down, logically, it never comes down to just like one little thing um, unless it's if it's a little thing, right? It never comes down to one little thing, but romantic relationship wise to end on, like, is there any bargaining uh, examples you guys have? Kath, maybe starting with you. No, I have so many. I mean, where could I even begin? But I do think that this (laughs) is just good perspective to keep in mind because it's funny how I can relate the other stages to it. And this is probably like one of my more problem areas. um, And I've never related it back. So it's actually really helpful to hear that as well, even though I've never connected the dots for some reason. But um, yeah, that's something I tend to do. But I recognize that and am working on that. Um, Again, super easy to get and fall into that trap for sure. Also, I'm anxious attached. And this is like the bread and butter of what anxious attached people do. Um, how about you, Mads? I'm absolutely anxious to touch too. I think we've discussed it. And I was, I was, I had my fingers crossed whenever Kelsey asked this question. And I was hoping that Kathy would go first because I knew she would like represent us well before I had to. Um, but absolutely, I've done this. I do find that in, and as much as I feel all of these things as well in the great, uh, grief of a relationship, um, I do feel like the, this one is always like, I, I don't, I always know when I'm going through that or with a relationship that I'm going through the stages of grief. But when I'm going through grief, grief, I don't actually realize that that was what is in the moment. So like, if I am doing the what if game and like reading text messages, like I know I'm bargaining at that point, like I know what I'm doing. And again, I don't know if it's because I was introduced to it with like the sitcom theme or what, uh, but I think I definitely do it in all aspects, but I could usually control it a lot easier when it's not with like death grief. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Kels? No, for sure. I feel like, yeah, we're you're aware of it. I've done the scrolling back and rereading texts, or I've been like, oh, you know, if I did this this way, if I did this this way, because it's like your brain wants to attach to something to be like, 
well, there's got to be a reason why it didn't work out. And like sometimes it just doesn't work out or you're not compatible people or you're not meant to be depending on what you believe in. Like, but yeah, like I'm definitely more self-aware in the dating perspective and it happens way more often or even in sports, like, oh, well, you know, if this player didn't come up to bat at this time, like, you know, I literally deal with people bargaining like all day, every day, <laughs> like any loss, like I'll try to be like, oh yeah, well, we only lost because of this bad call. And if it wasn't for the bad call, then like we wouldn't have lost. And I feel like that's how I'm using bargaining the most. That's so funny. I've never thought about it like that, but so true. And I think the same thing too, even as a fan, I don't work for a sports team, but as a fan, I think that too. And I'm sure plenty of people do. Um, But I think this is a good place to end for today. We still have two more stages that we talked about how we could actually split this up into two episodes. So this could be part one, and then we'll have a part two where we discuss depression and acceptance a little bit more at length. But I really actually loved this topic and I learned a lot. I hope you guys learned a lot too, even just from talking about it. Um, But I will definitely pass it to Kelsey to close because she just does the best job. (laughs) So sweet. You guys were so funny with that when I wasn't here. But yeah, I think this was such a cool topic and a way to do it and like a very eye-opening, even just how different the three of us were. And yeah, next next time we'll get to talk about the last two and kind of overall thoughts. But to wrap up, thank you all for listening. Please share and send with a friend uh, anyone who you think would enjoy or appreciate this one. This is maybe a good intro one or one that like everyone has maybe at least heard of the five stages of grief. So I feel like that could be a good touch point. Um Please follow us on social media, send us messages. If you have any ideas, suggestions, comments, feedback, we really appreciate all of you. Thank you so much for listening and we'll talk next time. Bye.